This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Dozens of federal members of parliament are collecting thousands of dollars a year in pensions. Now, most MPs are getting pensions uh, from where they work from various levels of government. Uh, a few of them are receiving private sector pensions. Uh, and there are some, some very important differences between these two. But it does raise the question of if you're getting a government check because you're still employed by the government, such as, for instance, a member of parliament, should you still be receiving a government pension at the same time? Isn't that double dipping? Kind of smells like it, doesn't it? Joining us to talk about this is Aaron Woodrick, uh, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, first of all, Aaron, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Bill. I, I know that uh, I, I don't want to get into the colloquialism. Well, let's throw it out there on the table anyway. But pigs at the trough. But I mean, that's the way a lot of people characterize what goes on in Ottawa an awful lot of the time. There's an awful lot of money up there, and it's our money. It's taxpayers' money. And uh, there's a lot of them dipping into it right now. We can talk about the pension plan. We certainly know about that. Yeah. But this is Canada pension and a few other things too. And this this is somewhat disturbing. Some of this some of this is legitimate. We want to put that out there, don't we? Yep. Yeah, look, uh, people have to remember, part of a pension is paid in by the employee. So that is your money that's essentially deferred salary. And I don't think anyone has a problem with people collecting that. It's When it comes to public pensions, though, Bill, of course, the other part of that is paid for by taxpayers. And I think that is the part where people are scratching their heads saying, a lot of folks today, especially in the private sector, don't have a pension at all. And then What what is it, something like 70% of us don't? A a huge number don't, Bill. And many Canadians are struggling. And so when they see people who have been uh, public sector employees, Uh, who are now elected MPs collecting a salary and a very generous public sector pension, I think they start to ask themselves, is this really fair? And so the question has arisen, should this be allowed? Should they be able to collect at the same time that they're working? Well, and let's talk about some numbers because those are important right now. And and I know that there was a time, uh, probably not in your lifetime or mine, but when when members of parliament didn't make a whole lot of money, they were quote-unquote public servants. They're not doing too badly these days. No, they're they're looking in upwards of 170, 180 grand a year. Um, of course, they have you know very very good expenses on top of that that are paid for by taxpayers. Um, so they're not struggling. I, I, you know they're not millionaires either. I don't want to suggest that, but they're, they're doing quite well relative to other Canadians. And so you know I think the question about this pensions, which has come up this week, is you know should there perhaps be a rule that if you're an elected MP, any other public sector pension that you're receiving, you can only get the portion that you pay, your own money. You don't get the taxpayer supplement. Uh, uh, as long as you're working as an MP. Now, we did mention some variations on this, and, and one, well, the local MP here in the Hamilton area, Scott Duval, who's the, the MP, of course, for Hamilton Mountain, uh, is receiving a pension, but that's from ArcelorMittal to FASCO. That's got nothing to do with government money or people's money. So we kind of, and there are, he's not the only one. There are some like that. And you kind of set those aside and said, okay, fine. That was, that's a, an agreement back from his previous workplace. That's okay. We, we're not going to touch that. We're not going to get worried about that. No, I agree, because remember, the only reason that uh, I think the public has a right to be concerned is if it's public money. Uh, yeah, you know, exactly. We get into this debate all the time. It's the same thing with corporate executive compensation. You know, we were very upset when Bombardier was giving raises because they took taxpayer money. If it's a private business, I mean, they can pay their people whatever they want. It's, it's none of your or my business. But as soon as it's taxpayer money, I think the public has a right to start asking questions about whether it's being used prudently. Well, the, time, the timing stunk on that. I mean, they got a great big bailout check from the government, and then they said, oh, God, thank you for this. Hey, by the way, it's bonus time, everybody. Uh, and that just that just doesn't smell right. 
Well, that's right. I mean, I, I, I've had lots to say about that company over the years, and, I, you know, it does astonish me sometimes. It just seems, uh, you know, I don't know who thought that this would be a good idea, given what they've been going through the last couple of years. Anyway, let's, uh, we'll, that's another issue. And, and by the way, you can go to the website, well, this, it's the Kennedy Taxpayer Federation website. We'll talk about that at the end of the conversation here because there's, there's some links to some of the stuff that, uh, that you and others have written about that, too. And it's, it's, it's always a good read and very informative read. But back to the pension issue for just a second. And, and here's the thing that, that really galls me about this. And, and I know we can argue about, about the, the MP's pension plan, and I still think it's, it's an aberration. And I think it's almost an insult to some Canadians that, uh, that even in the worst days of, uh, of the recession back in 2008, 2009, when a lot of us lost our pensions, those of us that had them saw them uh, dissipated by a considerable amount of money, uh, that there was a, a law in effect that we found out about after the fact that said no matter what the economic conditions, the MP's pension plan needs to be topped up to its full extent. So, so in, our, in our toughest, harshest economic times, the money that we were giving to Ottawa, part of that was going to make sure that the MPs had a nice soft landing no matter what. That, that, that's the sort of thing that no matter what you feel about elected officials, you figure, hey, why are there two sets of rules here? Well, you're right. And, and I mean, uh, speaking even more broadly, the politicians, the public sector generally, you know, I don't want to bash the public sector. I think there's many people, good people in the public sector who do good work. But the reality is many public sector employees have what are called defined benefit, pen, uh, defined, uh, benefit pensions. Yeah. So whatever you pay in, you're guaranteed a certain payout. That's not the reality for the rest of us. You know, when we have private investments for our, our retirement or a defined contribution plan, you know, whatever the market yields is what you get. And a lot of people are starting to ask, why is it that people in the public sector get a guarantee uh, subsidized by everyone else, whereas the rest of us working in the private sector don't get that. So I think that's a fair debate to have, and I think it's a fair question about whether we need to start moving away from defined benefit contributions in the public sector towards a hybrid or defined contribution. Well, isn't that the big debate that goes on with a number of the uh, the public sector contracts that are coming up right now? Because we've moved away from that in the private sector. Years ago, we moved away from that. I, I'd be hard-pressed uh, off the top of my head to come up with any major corporation that even has that kind of a pension plan anymore. Yet the public sector employees are clinging to that, and, and it often becomes a very, very rough point during negotiations. Yeah, look, I don't blame them for trying to keep oh, it. Oh, sure, I, mean, I would do if I had it. It's a wonderful thing to have a guarantee when you're retired. The problem is it doesn't sync with reality, Bill. There is no guarantee in this world. Uh, you know, people in the in the private sector have to rely on what the market bears. Why should it be different in the public sector? Why should they be the ones to bear the additional cost if things don't pan out just because people happen to work in the private sector? It isn't fair to the rest of Canadians. To that same point, by the way, let, let me ask you about, about something else about this, because uh, the story, obviously, that uh, that CBC printed out, and you guys have been talking about this for, for months now, uh, has to do with members of parliament and the pensions that they're doing. And by the way, there were some astounding numbers in this first one that, that really stuffed out at me. And uh, are the, the, the relatively high number of people in the House of Commons right now that are over age 65 and qualify for this, uh, so much for the leaders of tomorrow. I don't know where they are, but they're certainly not in the House of Commons these days. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of focus on the young leadership, Justin Trudeau, of course, generational change, Andrew Scheer, uh, a lot of the NDP candidates. I mean, we could have, you know, three leaders under the age of 50 in the next election, uh, Bill. So that's something. But in terms of... Yeah, but you know, they should go over to the daycare center because they're going to be so younger (laughs) than everybody else over there. Yeah, no question. But, you know, there, there, are, there are a lot of older folks. And then the reality is a lot of politicians uh, tend to move up from the municipal level or the provincial level uh, to federal politics. And so that's the reason I think there's a high number of people who have previously been in other public sector roles now as members of parliament. And that explains why so many of them are receiving pensions. And the other thing, Bill, is that you don't necessarily have to be 65 in some cases. Depending yeah. on the plan, you can be as young as I believe there's one MP is 48 
who's receiving their pension. So it really depends on the rule. Yeah, and and again, like some of those are private sector, and that's that's fine. You know, we we're not talking about those folks at all. So I don't want everybody to get their back up about this. This is this is people's money. This is this is government money that's going into this. And and here's one of the other things that this uncovered, this report uncovered today, that I think is very germane to this discussion, because we've been talking a little bit here about the private sector as well, Aaron. If you are in the private sector and you're in this situation, you're not allowed to collect that pension. I mean, there are rules about what they can do. They can't double dip, yet MPs seem to be able to do it. Yeah, and that, that is another important fact, right? If, if uh, again, pensions are made up of partly what you pay in and, and what others pay in. In a private sector pension, it's a company, and in the public sector, it's taxpayers. So I think it is entirely fair to ask why, if you are duly employed and making a good salary, um, why should taxpayers be paying that additional chunk while you're still getting a paycheck from taxpayers as well. Well, here's the way it goes. I'll just paraphrase this. Federal public servants who return to the federal government after retiring face restrictions. Those who take a job they are again contributing to the pension plan must suspend their pension checks while serving in that position. And and they're very specific. I love the wording in this, Aaron. Uh, They say that people who are in that circumstance right now have to bear the closest public scrutiny. In other words, you better watch out because we don't want to hear about this. With MPs, they're kind of saying, yeah, guys, knock yourselves out. Go do whatever you want to do. And, yeah. and, and this is another one of these incidents where members of parliament and their expenses and the money that they're obtaining right now is cloaked in this shroud of secrecy. We, we, we find out about this every now and then. It's the same thing when they talk about expenses. And you mentioned that as part. Of, it's not part of income necessarily, but it's certainly uh, the way that they spend our money. That's that's done in such a very covert way. Even the report that they file every year is 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 such a broad-based report right now that we never really get down to the nitty-gritty of exactly where those tax dollars go. And 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 that's the sort of thing that I think creates that that sense of mistrust that many ca- people have. I think for elected officials. Yeah, look, we're living in tumultuous times, uh, Bill. I think it's safe to say politically there's been a shift in the last few years, and I think politicians need to be very, very careful that they are not seen to be living and playing by different rules than everybody else. That is what upsets a lot of people. I certainly hear from it from our supporters all the time. It's, it's not that they begrudge politicians for being politicians. It's that they have the sense, and there's plenty of evidence, that they have different rules and they get special treatment, and that's really what sets people off. Well, and at some point you'd like to think that when stories like this break and, and when you guys at the Canadian Taxpayer Federation come out with statements like this and your, your annual clock and the debt clock and things like this, that it might, it might at least motivate these guys to have a conversation about this and say, you know what, maybe maybe we have to reconsider this. But invariably, yeah. what they do is they, they just they just circle the wagons and they start defending each other. And, and after a day or two, the story seems to go away. And, you know, sometimes you're right. It seems like it's a hopeless battle. But, Bill, I can tell you it has worked. For example, the, the, the MPs' pensions that they receive for being MPs, for years and years, um, it was it was grossly unfair. For every dollar they put in, taxpayers were putting in 20 bucks. Yeah. With that but finally, after years and years of advocacy, uh, the Harper government finally fixed that, and it's now down to about a buck fifty taxpayers put in for every dollar. So, you know, there is progress sometimes if you fight hard and long enough. Well, and I can tell you another example, and I know you know this historically, but it bears uh, repeating for the sake of our listeners as well. Uh, retiring MPs uh, started collecting their pension usually the week after they quit. Uh, back in the day, and and of course that was a huge burden to us as well. And 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 to the government's credit, they've at least modified that. And are there still some examples where that happens? But more often than not, they still have to wait till retirement age to to start drawing on that. But we had guys that were 35, 40 years old that uh, that had served enough time to be fully vested into the MP pension plan that started collecting it as soon as they left office. 
So, so some of the, you're right. Some of these things have been addressed. Some of them have been modified. But this story today, Aaron, proves that we've got a long way to go. No, I agree. And I, I certainly hope that at least it coming to light now and it becoming a story makes the government think about it. Uh, I like to think all governments uh, at least have some open mind about these things, and, and hopefully that's the case with this one. Well, and, and again, I'm not trying to say these are bad people. I'm not trying to say, hey, they're trying to rip us off. But but those that, that see this story, and, and I know some of these MPs, and I know you've talked with a number of them over the years too, Aaron, uh, you know, it's just you have to understand that they have to see the way that this is the, this is something that doesn't look right to us. It doesn't pass the smell test. It's not uh, the sort of thing that people are struggling these days can look up and say, "Well, I guess they've earned that." There has to be some sense of of decency about this to say maybe we can modify some of these rules. Maybe there's a better way for us to do this. Well, you're absolutely right. And I, I, as I say again, in these times, uh, there is nothing more dangerous for a politician than to be seen as out of touch and living by a completely different set of rules as everyone else. So I think all MPs would do well to, to think about this carefully and, and how it looks to, to average Canadians. I, I would think, I mean, there's always going to be some people who complain, but I would think if there was more transparency about this and uh, about how they spend every one of our tax dollars, I mean, the salary, sure, the expenses, we'd like to know more about. Uh, I think there'd be a lot more acceptance and the people could say, well, okay, I can understand that. But when we don't know, that's when the speculation comes out. And then every time and every now and then, you've seen it and we've seen it, uh, some story will come out about somebody who is not spending the money the way they probably should have. And we start to all of a sudden think, well, they're probably all doing it. And we don't have any proof that they're not, so that only makes things worse. Now, you're right. Sunlight is the best disinfectant, and we've called long, for example, for MPs to post the scanned receipts of their expenses. It's not a new thing, Bill. They already do it in Alberta. They do it in the city of Toronto for city councillors. It's the simplest thing. I mean, they already have to submit receipts. Just scan them and put them online, and people know what you're spending the money on. They don't have to guess. Um, and you're absolutely right. It moves it away from a sort of gotcha, you got spend, uh, got caught spending, to you know a sober analysis of is, is your spending reasonable? And frankly, I think most of your spending is reasonable. But when they are secretive about it, it starts to give rise to questions about whether or not, you know, what on earth are they spending this money on? And you're making some cracks. I mean, you know, the city of Toronto does that right now. Councillors have done that for the last few years now. They put them on their websites. Uh, you'd like to think that somebody in Ottawa would clue into that, too, that maybe that's not a bad thing to do. Aaron, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, great to have it. Uh, they can go to the website, right, if they want to get more information about this? Yeah, absolutely. Taxpayer.com. And check out our Facebook page. We're very active there. Millions of views a week. So lots of stuff on our Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And if you want a real scare, look at the debt clock. That'll always get you going. So. <laughs> Not first thing in the morning. It ruins no, the day. no, no, no. Uh, you may, yeah, may have to wait till later in the day. Maybe a stiff drink after that, too. Aaron, thanks as always. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, you too. Take care. Aaron Woodrick, of course, Federal Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It seems every couple of months we have a discussion about code zeros here in Hamilton. And uh, I find that instructive in a number of different ways. First of all, there's a concern about this. And secondly, code zero is a term that probably five, six years ago nobody even knew uh, because hardly anybody ever used it. But now it's become part of the, the lingo. It's become part of the language here in Hamilton. Uh, we were shocked. I remember the, the first time I think we probably used the story with the, the, the term Code Zero in it. Uh, we were shocked that there was even one. And Code Zero, for the, the, the one or two in the city that may not know this, is when there is one or fewer ambulances available uh, for emergency situations here in the city because they're all engaged doing other things uh, and usually wasting time, uh, but which we'll get into that in a couple of seconds. And, and one is, is bad enough if there's a Code Zero incident like this. But here we are now, the first couple of days of August, and apparently eight months into the year, there have already been more Code Zeros in Hamilton 
than there were all of last year. So it's not getting better. Why not? Let me ask Mario Pastorero that. He's the president of OPSU Local 256. Uh, and those are the folks that, that come to our aid when we call 911 in emergency services. Mario, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me on. Well, you've become a semi-regular on the show now because every couple of months uh, when statistics come out about this, uh, it's it's a pretty troubling story, isn't it? Well, it sure is, and it really does paint a grim picture of the existing stress that's placed on our, our service, our patients, and the frontline paramedics. As we've reported in the past, call volume continues to increase. Uh, in 2016, uh, our service responded to 79,000 calls for assistance. Um, that was a 7% increase from the year previous. It was only predicted to increase by 4%. There's been a total increase of 35% in requests for medical assistance over the last seven years. That has not been mitigated with additional frontline resources, and that's one of the reasons we're facing these Code Zero events, Bill. I want to talk about a couple of different things statistically here, Mario, but before we do that, let me reverse the way we often talk, talk about this. And I want to talk about your staff, first of all, and then we'll get into the, some of the logistics about how this is affecting the, the public, uh, the, those of us that may have to call 911 for situations like this, uh, because the impact it's having on your staff is significant. And and we know a lot more about mental health issues, for instance, now, and, and, and I know that there is a program in place for that, and that's great news, but accessing it and having staff to, to cover for people that may have some downtime because of this is also problematic. Talk to me about what it's doing for your members and, and how that's impacting, because if the people that are delivering the services are also stressed out and they're at the max, that's a problem. Well, our staff is uh, continuously stretched to the limit. Um, in spite of that, you know, paramedics still respond to calls, in spite of the fact that they often go without having a meal, in spite of the fact that they're often forced to work overtime beyond their schedule shift, which is 12 hours. Um, so it does have a cumulative effect. We've got programs in place. Hopefully that will, will deal with some of those uh, mental issues that arise from the very difficult work that we do. But you know, I'd really like to focus on what uh, Code Zero events and the lack of frontline ambulances do to the patient. Well, let's get into that. And we've used the term so often that, um, and, and even the decision makers are, have become apathetic in reporting Code Zero events. Um, you know, the province, the city, our senior management, local hospitals need to regain the sense of urgency that grew out of the very first much publicized Code Zero event in 2006. Um, to, to, put a, to paint a picture of what occurs when there's a Code Zero event, when there's only one or no ambulances available, um, we have a high call volume service. Calls keep coming in. They don't come in in an organized fashion. And dispatch has to prioritize those calls. So what happens to your mother, your grandmother, who may have fallen, may have fractured her hip? She's not going to be prioritized uh, over a patient that may be having a heart attack. So your grandmother or my mother might be waiting for an hour, an hour and a half with a fractured hip laying on the floor. The ability for paramedics to respond in a timely manner to provide psychological and physiological comfort is minimized. That's not clinically acceptable. It shouldn't be publicly acceptable. That's the picture that people have to understand. Your listeners have to understand that is the cascading effect of a code zero event. We're using numbers, we're using terms, but the real life issue on the street is our patients, the elderly who comprise a significant portion of our call volume, the elderly are five times more likely to call for medical assistance than those under age 65. That's a growing demographic. Your mother, my grandmother, um, the elderly are being denied the psychological and physiological comfort 
when they fall, crack a hip, uh, fracture an arm. That's the picture that people have to understand. That's the effect of what Code Zero events have on our on our citizens, Bill. Well, let me give you some numbers because now this report comes out, and isn't it interesting that the census data is also out this week as well? So, so we can substantiate what you've just said here. Uh, the census data shows that the fastest growing population segment for EMS workers uh, serving is uh, is age over sixty five. Okay. The provincial projections estimate that 25% of the province's population are going to be over 65 by the year 2021. That's only five years from now. That's not that far away, which means that your call volumes for that demographic are only going to go up in the next little while. I mean, as drastic as it is now, the numbers here indicate, Mario, this is going to get worse. And they've probably been understated and at a council and for more information report meeting uh, to city council a couple months back jason far actually said i think we're underestimating what the increase in call volume is given our age demographic and it's slated to be twenty-two thousand additional requests for medical assistance over the next five years well they were off by 80 percent last year when they said it would only increase by four percent and in fact they increased by seven percent so we're underestimating what the impact will be well, because this is a let's let's look at the Hamilton only numbers here as well, uh, and we'll drop it down a little bit to age fifty plus, okay? But I mean, you're still the people that are getting up there right now. Uh, the average that the provincial average of people that are over fifty one years of age is about thirty eight percent. It's forty one percent in Hamilton, so we are already ahead of the curve here. Hamilton population is older than the provincial average and getting older faster because of the number of people in this area that are over sixty five. So the burden on you guys right now is significant. It is, and it's not being met or uh, mitigated with the recognition that we need to staff up or deal with the consequences because there is a crisis looming. We're already in the midst of it, and we've been continuously reporting it. And you know, we're on the front lines. We're on the street seeing it and living it. Our paramedics do this. We've been reporting it for a number of years. We're disappointed that there was no request for frontline ambulance enhancement for 2017, we hope there will be for 2018, because we're paying, playing continual staffing catch-up. And all the other demographics and all the other benchmark initiatives indicate that we are below complement in ambulance staffing. And, and you can also, I mean, I can give you uh, numerous different um, um, numbers and, and that, that items to substantiate, you know, what, what I'm saying. Um, you know, we occupy a very thin slice of the budget pie. In 2016, the average taxpayer, um, their taxes went PMS uh, to, to the tune of $79 um, for EMS total. For fire, it was $350. For police, it was an area of $600. That's per residential average taxpayer. So EMS has always been ill-served and inappropriately financed given the work that we do compared to our sister services. So we need to, and council has to make the decision, you know, what's publicly acceptable, what's clinically acceptable, and recognize that unless we staff up to meet the demand and the increasing demand for our services, we will be running a third-rate ambulance service. And I, I don't think our elderly, who comprise a significant portion of our calls, deserve that. Well, I mean, let's look at, at those calls as well. And, and, you know, we're talking about people that are older, slips and falls, those sorts of injuries that can occur. Uh, you know, we've, we've had some pretty hot days. I mean, that can be a cause for 911 calls, too, because of the, the negative impact that that can have on people. There's so many different things that are happening. 
And then, of course, you get into the, the inclement winter weather, and, and, and those numbers are just magnified, of course, considerably because of the sorts of things that are going on. Now, I know that, that there are some officials that will say, well, you know, it, yeah, the numbers make it look bad, but you know what? We have had ambulances from other areas that can cover in case of th- something like this. It's, it's really kind of putting fingers in the hole in, in the dike, isn't it, Mario? I mean, it's not the sustainable solution that they're talking about here. Consultant reports, um, you know, we as frontline paramedics have been saying for years that um, the demographics point to an increase in calls for medical assistance. Um, I don't know how many different ways we can say it, but the people that they've hired as third-party consultants that they've paid for have told them this. So whether there's a complacency in recognizing what the need and the fix is, it's definitely not being uh, addressed adequately. We're playing staff and catch-up. We always have, and we will continue to ill-serve our citizens unless we're able to tackle the real issue and channel the appropriate funds to our ambulance service. And we can spin it any way you want, but uh, unless there's a recognition that we need more, you can't do more. And right now, the more is increasing beyond our ability to respond. It's having an effect on the patients, and it's having an effect on the paramedics and our service. There's another element to this that always comes into the conversation, and, and the numbers that I've seen on this are pretty troubling, Mario, and that's offload times. In other words, once once uh, your staff picks somebody up, once they take them to a, a primary care facility, a hospital, in this case like this, uh, my the numbers I've seen here indicate that, that here in Hamilton, the offload time is about three times what the province is suggesting it should be, three times longer. So in other words, you've got staff that are sitting there in hospitals waiting for the, the people they brought in there to be accepted into the hospital so they can be treated properly. Those are uh, units that should be on the road right now, but they're not because that problem still hasn't been fixed. Absolutely. Uh, hospital offloads suck up valuable frontline resources. Never been disputed. Offload uh, delays are not the only reason why we have code zero events. So, you know, we need to proportionalize where the blame is. And unfortunately, the hospital scenario will continue to get loose or get worse. That's a provincial mandate. Our, our municipality has to recognize that they may not be able to control that. And in light of the announced cuts, it will probably get worse, unfortunately. You know, patients are backed up in the emergency department because there's no beds in the wards or the units, because there's no place for these patients to go in the community. It's been a cutback at all areas. Patients are being released sooner and sicker. We respond to those patients, so we're treating them. So the weight and the burden has unfortunately been placed on the municipality and our ambulance service. Having said that, do we blame other levels of government and uh, other managers within the hospital system, or do we do what we can control, which is address the issue of increasing call volume by putting additional frontline resources uh, on the street, Bill? And, you know, we have to be honest about where the blame is. Yes, it's a factor. The provincial government should not be cutting back on the hospital budgets, which lead to bed cuts. But what do we do as an ambulance service? Do we just lay blame and wait around while our citizens are waiting an hour, an hour and a half? Well, that's not going to work. It's not going to work. So, you know, should there be a staff? And there hasn't been a continual and gradual staffing enhancement in order to keep up with our increasing call volume. So we can blame the hospitals or we can take the bull by the horns and recognize that we need to adequately staff our ambulance service. And, 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 and our focus has to, be, has to be, let's try to find a way to collaborate to, to make this happen on a gradual basis. We missed the boat in 2017. There was no staffing enhancement. Now we're going to begin in 2018. We're going to try to play catch-up. We're below complement. That's the issue, and that has to be recognized. But 
council will ultimately make the decision about the type of ambulance service they want. And what's clinically acceptable, what's publicly acceptable, they will make that decision. They have the numbers and the data in front of them. They can't ignore it. I, we've been very vocal about where we think the dollars should go, and it has to be a prioritization by city council. And the EMS paramedic service has to be adequately funded. It is not. Look at politicians are very good at, at, at passing the buck onto somebody else and simply saying, well, if they hadn't done that, then we wouldn't have this problem. And, and sometimes, as, as you've just articulated, Mario, sometimes that's a legitimate concern. You know, the downloading process, and we all heard about that for years and years, and, and of course there was a lot of truth to that. But at some point, those elected officials, whether it's at the municipal level or anything else, but we'll talk about that since that's what we're talking about here with ambulance service, They've got to come to the realization that, look, yeah, what the province is doing stinks, and it's having a negative impact on the hospitals, but it's not getting fixed anytime soon. But that does not abdicate those municipal politicians from their responsibility to do something about emergency services. Don't come back to me and say, well, if all those people were able to get offloaded in a quick time and those ambulances back out there, everything would be fine. The numbers indicate that, no, it won't be fine. You still don't have enough units on the road. Absolutely well said. Um, I, I couldn't say it better than you've just articulated, Bill. And that is the reality, and that's sort of the message that we're trying to deliver, that, yes, there's other levels of government that have been missing in action. We get that. And depending on the political stripe of the day, they may provide monies, but I just don't see it happening in the foreseeable future. So do we just apply Band-Aids and make promises on how we're going to deal with these issues within the hospital, or do we, as as a municipality, recognize that we can only control certain aspects of this. But we're not addressing those areas that we can't control. And given that we've been historically understaffed and the call volume supports additional frontline ambulances, I mean, what else is there to decide? I mean, either you spend the dollars on putting more vehicles on the road or you, you, you deliver to the public um, a, a second-rate ambulance service and, and be honest about it because... The demographics point to an increase in call volume. Our elderly are not going away. That demographic is increasing, and they take up a significant portion of EMS calls. And as I said, you're trying to paint the picture of maybe not a life-threatening request for medical assistance. If somebody falls, an elderly lady who falls, lives alone, and fractures her hip. She's laying on the floor for an hour, an hour and a half. What impact does that have? Is that, it's not clinically acceptable, because by the time we get to them, she's in excruciating pain. We try to deliver um, physiological comfort by administering medication, uh, psychological comfort. But is that the type of service that we want? I don't think it's publicly acceptable. And I think the decision makers have to view it through that lens, view it through the lens of the patient who calls 911 and needs help. We're not there. That's the reality. Well, this is a service. Uh, and it's an essential service. I mean, let's put this in context. Uh, this is not somebody who calls the city and says, I'd like the tree in front of my house trimmed. Uh, you know, if they're not there in 10 minutes, it's really going to alter my life. This is somebody, as you say, who is in discomfort or has had some sort of a medical emergency who's called 911. And, and you're right. I know they prioritize the calls. And if, if it's a cardiac issue, they try to get there as quickly as they can. But all the years you've been doing this, Mario, you can tell us more than anybody else that if you're that person who's been victimized, if you're the person who's laying on the floor, the person who's in pain, minutes seem like hours. And and if you have to wait and wait and wait because you're, they, there simply aren't enough units to respond to all the calls, 
uh, well, we know what the consequence of that can be. It may not be life-threatening, but it, it causes an awful lot more pain and suffering that really needed to be there. And I'd hate like hell to try to explain to somebody's family, well, you know what, we would have been there sooner, but we elected officials want to maintain our, you know, lower taxes. And, you know, this is not about lower taxes. This is about uh, supplying the service that's needed. And they're not doing it. Absolutely. And is EMS workers, frontline workers, we provide a service. That service, to a large degree, um, includes dealing with patients who are mentally challenged, uh, patients that may not be having a heart attack but yet are in significant distress. We can't help these patients if we can't get to them. And when you have a code zero event and calls keep coming in, and again, Hamilton is a high call volume service, 79,000 requests for medical assistance in 2016 alone, and uh, council's been made aware of the fact that, you know, through our chief that we're one of the busiest ambulance services in the province. So if you're that patient that is not having a heart attack, has never called 911, now you've fallen and you fractured hip, you cannot get up, and the service that you thought was there isn't, and it takes an hour and a half for somebody to come and help you, you know, what does that say about the service that we're delivering? And, uh, again, I just want to paint the picture for, for those listeners who have perhaps have become immune to the jargon of Code Zero events. And even, you know, uh, some managers, you know, are defending the fact that, well, we're only at 75 Code Zero events. It's not as bad as it was in 2011, 2014. Really? We shouldn't have any Code Zero events. We had the first one in 2006. It was met with fur, and they hired a consultant. I know. Listen, that. you know, we're almost out of time. But you know what? If somebody called 911 and said, hey, my house is on fire, and, and police and fire services said, you know what? We're kind of tied up. We'll get there when we can. People would go apoplectic. If you called 911 and said there's a robbery in progress here, well, you know what? We, we're kind of busy. Could you just uh, write a report, and we'll get back to you? They'd go nuts. But when it's a life-and-death situation or a pain situation like this, all of a sudden it doesn't seem to have the same priority. I just don't get it, Mario. I really just don't get it. Don't get it. Obviously, um, the city council has to make the decision. The message has to be delivered uh, by our senior management that we need to staff up or deal with the consequences because there is a crisis looming. We're starting to live it. It will only get worse. Mario, let's stay in touch on this, and uh, hopefully somebody at City Hall is going to get the message. I appreciate the time today. Appreciate the time. Have a good day, Bill. You too. Mario Pastero is the president of Opsu Local 256. Code zeros. It's August. We've already had more this year than we had all of last year. It's just not acceptable. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. I want to talk about personal data, personal security, your information, your banking information, your health information, stuff that you hold near and dear and confidential, right? Well, maybe not for much longer uh, because apparently that's on the table with the NAFTA negotiations. Personal information to Canadians is going to be on the negotiating table of the North American Free Trade Talks when they begin in just a few weeks, the United States has served notice that it wants to end the measures that restrict cross-border data flow and require the use of installation of local computing facilities. Now, there are already laws in place here in this country to try to protect that, but they may be in peril. We don't know what's going to be happening. Let's talk to David Fraser about this. David is a lawyer with uh, McKinnis Cooper in Nova Scotia, leading Internet technology and privacy lawyers, and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. David, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. It's a pleasure. Happy to chat. Listen, I was talking about some of the laws that are in place here right now. One of those is in Nova Scotia, so maybe you could put some context into this for us. Sure, yeah. Uh, Nova Scotia and British Columbia are the only two provinces that have put in place 
uh, statutes that prohibit the public bodies under provincial jurisdiction, so the provincial government, municipalities, universities, schools, and hospitals, from allowing personal information to be stored outside of Canada or accessed from outside of Canada. So those are the only two, two provinces that have done that. And those would be the two statutes that I guess that would be right in the, uh, right in the target of mm-hmm. these discussions and renegotiations. Uh, and so good for them. Uh, the, the, when, I, when I saw that stat uh, earlier today, the first question, of course, I hit is why haven't the other provinces jumped on side? It seems like the natural thing to do. Not necessarily. I, I think that the federal government actually has the best approach to it, which is at any time that, that the government makes a decision or is about to make a decision about contracting for IT services, they have to do a comprehensive risk analysis and, and assessment. And they look at a whole bunch of things, but among that is where will the data be and what sort of impact does that have on the security or the privacy of, of the information. The, what, one thing that's really interesting about this is that the law in British Columbia came to be because a trade union was upset about the outsourcing of jobs from the public sector. And while they couldn't get the British Columbia populace to get excited about those loss of jobs to the subsidiary of a, a Canadian subsidiary of a U.S. company, they were able to whip up a fair amount of frenzy about the possibility of the information being kind of given directly to Uncle Sam. And of course, this is uh, just after the Patriot Act, and this is during the George W. Bush uh, um, presidency and the reaction to that was to come up with a pretty rigid statute uh, that did not have a whole lot of flexibility into it and in fact they went so far and it was so overreaching that they had to go back and amend it twice once because they realized that the government of British Columbia could not take credit cards because credit card transactions can't be cleared entirely in Canada and governments like to get money Uh, and then they actually went and amended it again because they discovered that their MRI machines could not be maintained because the German company uh, that manufactured them would maintain them remotely uh, through uh, network connections and so it was a little bit overreaching and I find it to be fascinating that none of the other provinces have followed suit And in fact, I think the reason why, and I deal with this on a regular basis, I represent a number of American companies that do business in Canada and a number of Canadian companies that do business in the U.S., and it's just too rigid. It's, It's inflexible. There's a big difference between, for example, national security systems for the RCMP uh, and a, a classroom that wants to allow its students to blog. I had a, a, a query from a teacher in British Columbia when the Olympics were in Vancouver, and the law prevented her from having her students blog about the Olympics because there weren't any publicly available free blogging platforms that were based in Canada. All of them were based in the United States. And so information that was intended to be public in any event, it was kind of a a student journalism project, uh, had to be uh, cut uh, because of that. And and so we need to have flexibility and, and nuance. And the reality is that I think that the British Columbia law in particular, but the Nova Scotia one also just kind of followed suit in lockstep, is in fact and can easily be used as a non-tariff trade barrier. And I think that's what the United States is focusing on, and it will be interesting to see how the discussion plays out. On that theme, I'm glad you brought that up, because I've had discussions with other folks uh, uh, on on topics such as this, and, and, and the consensus I got from an awful lot of them, David, was, Look at, you know, the headline is, is uh, it's a grabber, sure. You know, Canadians' personal data on the table. But the, the, to the most part, they said, look, at this, this is really much ado about nothing. It's not as if FBI is going to be pouring over my files to see what's going on and, and, and these sorts of things. And, it, you know, the impact is going to be minimal. How do you respond to that? 
Well, I say in every case, whenever whenever a company or a government makes an IT contracting decision, they need to look at it in a, in a balanced and reasonable sort of way. And it needs to be in a, in a very informed way, because one thing that's abundantly clear, thanks to Edward Snowden, but many of us knew these things before, is that Canada has a Patriot Act. Canada has oh, sure. the Terrorism Act of 2001. Canada stands shoulder to shoulder with the United States National Security Agency and the FBI and things like that. If it's in Canada and the U.S. really want it, the U.S. is likely going to get it and, uh, and vice versa. And so part of the analysis needs to be, well, what's the sensitivity of the information? What's the risk of its disclosure? But also, would the FBI actually be interested in this particular data? And so that, that just kind of goes into the hopper, and you do a, a really good risk assessment, a privacy impact assessment and a threat risk assessment to determine whether or not uh, you should even allow this information off your premises. And one thing also that's, that's really worth noting is that um, there are, in some instances, greater protections under U.S. law, and in some instances, less fewer protections. Um, and so th you really end up in the weeds and in the nuances. So it shows a blunt instrument like the amendments to FIPA in British Columbia or Nova Scotia's Personal Information International Disclosure Protection Act are just too blunt uh, in order to do that. And, and I've also seen instances where this sort of thing is simply used as an excuse to say no to innovation within government. The reason why all of us use Gmail or Yahoo Mail or uh, Outlook.com uh, is because none of us want to run our own email surfers. You, <laughs> you have somebody else do that for you. Sure. Google has more security engineers, and Microsoft has more security engineers than the Canadian government has, has altogether. So there are a number of instances where the, the actual computer security is significantly improved by handing it over to a team of trained professionals. And, and so that's just another one of the factors that goes into the mix for prudent decision-making. Isn't there a little hypocrisy here, too, that people are getting a little upset, and, and some would even suggest maybe paranoid about, about the loss of personal data and exposed to, uh, to personal data when so many of us freely turn it over to, to social media engines, for instance? Well, and I think that's, that's a little bit of an illusion or a little bit misleading. So for me, privacy is about making choices and informed choices about my personal information. And so just because I have an active Twitter account and an active Facebook page doesn't mean that I get to make that decision about anybody else's privacy. They get to, they get to make their choices. And so also I get to choose what information I disclose publicly and what information I keep close to the vest. And so just because part of my life is lived online uh, and publicly doesn't mean that all of it should be. And so we need to be cautious about that. So certainly, notions of privacy have changed. I don't think that there's any doubt about that. We are, we are less afraid of, I guess, collectively, uh, the disclosure of certain amounts of information. 20 years ago, people were incredibly paranoid about disclosing any information. Oh, sure. Online. Yeah. And now you look at Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and, and all that. But that doesn't mean that people have lost their sense of privacy and their expectation of privacy. And in fact, privacy is also, at least there's an element of it, which is you get to choose how you, how you present yourself. And so uh, <laughs> this is a, just a phenomenon of social media that, that there's a whole lot of people out there, probably the majority, who they, they're always putting their happy, good, kind of flattering content out there uh, because they get to choose what they put out there and what they keep to themselves. 
But put this in context, if you could, Dave, to try to help us to understand exactly what's happening uh, with information like this and with data that's going out there. And uh, uh, that, you know, that if that's going to be exposed and if this is going to be on the negotiating table and if uh, U.S. companies uh, have access to this information. And, and, and by the way, that's a, a, a put a codicil to that, too, because as you mentioned, a lot of them already do anyway, or it's there if you want to get it. Uh, you know, the, the, there's always the, the next step as well. Those that are going to obtain this information are going to have nefarious reasons for doing it. And, and, and I guess that's always a possibility. It's sort of like when you get on a plane this afternoon, yeah, it might crash, but the likelihood is it's not going to. It, it, would you use that same, that same mindset to look at this information and, and data sharing to you too? Well, I think so, because I'm, I'm always looking at it in terms of risk. What's the, what's the likelihood that something's going to go wrong and what would the consequences of, of that be? And so that just goes in. And so I, I do that math every time I get on an airplane. I, presumably, I somehow do that math every time I, I step across the street. <laughs> um, but, and well, I guess when I get out when, to decide whether I'm going to get out of bed that morning. Uh, so I think that's that's all part and parcel of it. But you, you referred to earlier about kind of the paranoia or the concern about just handing it to an American company. Well, what is it about an American company that certainly kind of trade agreements are intended to deal with battle and actually be a counterpoint to that sort of discrimination based on the nationality of the of the company? You need to kind of dig deeper on that. And frankly, the, <laughs> one thing that's that's interesting is that most of the large U.S. IT companies now operate data centers or have servers in Canada. Uh, Microsoft does, Google does. Sure, Amazon they offer does. that as an option, right? They do. And, and, and so on one hand, if the concern is that it's going to an American company, for the, the, the Canadian federal government gives information regularly or uses the services of Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft is an American company, but the data is, is kept in Canada. Um, does, that, does that solve the problem? Because, in fact in an internet-connected world, the, the location of the data is not as important as, other, as some people might think. It's very different if you're talking about a piece of paper and where that resides. Data is connected to the global internet, which is inherently borderless, and also data can exist in multiple places uh, at the same time. And, you'd, and frankly, any, any cloud computing service provider worth its uh, worth its contracts is going to keep information in multiple places because of the security and the redundancy that that goes with uh, that goes with that. And if there are people that that have some untoward you know ideas about what they want to do with this, they're already out there, and we hear those stories all the time uh, about hackers and, and accessing information. But y- your point's well taken. I mean, if you look at the Patriot Act, and and of course our companion piece here in Canada that's been in place now for what about sixteen years. Uh, you know, those protections are in place. That data sharing has always been in place. And if you talk to folks like yourself, and I know I've, I've talked to a number of business people that have uh, business enterprises on both sides of the border, they'll say, you know what, it's already happening. And you know what, it's going pretty well so far. I mean, there are some aberrations from time to time, and those are problems, and they have to be dealt with. But the system seems to be working, and the sharing of data is, is not new, and it's not something that's, uh, that may be happening. It's something that is happening. Well, that's right, and, and, and certainly there, there have been some cases with significant consequences because of data sharing. Usually it's been because of inaccurate data sharing. The mayor of our case kind of comes immediately to mind. Um, and, but, it, but I haven't heard of instances where wholesale data has been hoovered up. Uh, and frankly, part of my, part of my practice is, is advising companies on dealing with government demands for customer data. Um, and so now there's probably a whole lot of hacking and, and government hacking and, and unofficial hacking that, that happens at the same time. Um, but, you know, if, if the government wanted to, so for example, if a university in Nova Scotia wanted to use a U.S. 
kind of hosted service provider for something called an ERP, an enterprise resource software system that, that kind of manages a whole lot of their operations. Is that the most sensitive information? Is that the sort of information that would be of interest to law enforcement? Because among the things that I'll ask my clients if they're looking to do decision-making is, well, have, have Canadian police ever gone looking for this information? Have you ever dealt with a production order or a search warrant in connection with this sort of stuff? Because that would be the first indicator that, that it's likely of interest to, uh, to law enforcement for, for any particular purpose. Uh, and you know, in most cases, the answer is the answer is no. But you you really need to look at it at the exact data, where it's going to be, who's going to be hosting it, what their policies are. In in every cloud computing contract that I've dealt with, there's an obligation on the part of the service provider to notify the customer if there's any any request. Uh, Alberta actually has in their statute, instead of blocking the cross-border transfer, they have a, a requirement in their law, which which is also in in British Columbia and Nova Scotia that requires uh, a contractor service provider to notify the government of the province if there's a foreign demand for disclosure. So if anybody makes a, a request, so if you do not provide that notice, you have committed an offense. Uh, you may, the service provider might find themselves between a rock and a hard place because there might be a gag order, on, on for example, under the U.S. demand, uh, but an obligation to notify the Minister of Justice. Um, but I also build in obligations on the part of the service provider to resist to the extent that they lawfully can. We've had the, the, the law in the U.S. related to national security letters has been significantly curtailed because of court challenges to these demands made by service providers like Google, Yahoo, and, and Microsoft. Um, and and they're, they don't have to make those – they don't have to push back. They could just easily kind of shovel over the information. But these companies um, – for whatever reason, when they see that, that a, a demand they think is overreaching or unconstitutional or infringes on protected speech or something like that, they do in fact step up and, and resist. And I think we should take some comfort from that as well. Well, sure. In other words, those safeguards are already in place. And there is some sense of transparency already that maybe a lot of us may not know about, but uh, but those that do these sorts of transactions on a, on a daily or weekly basis, I guess, are aware of them, aren't they? Well, that's right, and, and, and also there are other measures you can take. So this is a, a very complicated area, but I have, I have clients of mine who use uh, servers in the United States because of cost and other reasons, uh, but they encrypt the data that's on those servers, and the only keys to that data exist in Canada. So frankly, if the FBI were to walk in and seize those servers, which they're not likely to do, but if they did, there would be nothing that they could retrieve on it. So there, there are steps that you can take like that. There are other things like tokenization, which has been adopted by some public bodies in British Columbia so that they can use uh, some great online cloud services like Salesforce. And tokenization uses a computer system in Canada to strip out the personal identifiers in Canada and replace them with gobbledygook, but so there's kind of a, a translation between gobbledygook and the actual text, but the engine that does that stays in Canada. So if anybody were to get their hands on it in the United States, it, it is ultimately meaningless. And so it's those sorts of things. We, we always, I've been talking a lot about risk, and we also need to be at the same time talking, well, how do you mitigate against these risks? How do you minimize the possible impact? There are technological solutions. There are contractual solutions. It's not a one-size-fits-all um, and so you have these BC, the BC law and the Nova Scotia law that kind of one size fits all by saying no. I, I think we need to get uh, get a little bit more nuanced at that. Always insightful to have you on the program to put some context into this stuff, David. Thank you so much for the time today. 
It's my pleasure. Anytime. Take care. David Fraser, of course, with McKinnison Cooper in Nova Scotia, uh, talking about uh, what may be available in these NAFTA negotiations about personal data and sharing. Let me do the break. We'll come back in a few minutes. The Bill Kelly Show, 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.